Hello, and welcome to Fade Out, the podcast that examines the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights. Proud member of the Fine Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. For this episode, our subject is actress Carol Lombard. Born in 1908, Lombard made her debut at the ripe old age of 13 in the 1921 silent film A Perfect Crime, credited under her real name, Jean Peters. Soon after, she was rechristened Carol Lombard, making her way up the Hollywood ladder, playing bigger and bigger parts in bigger and bigger movies. She signed a contract with Paramount Pictures, which began to give her headlining parts, mostly in dramas. Then in 1934, she starred in Howard Hawks' 20th Century, one of the very first screwball comedies. Showing a real gift for the genre, Lombard went on to appear in films like Hands Across the Table with Fred McMurray, My Man Godfrey with her ex-husband William Powell, which would earn her an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress, and Nothing Sacred with Frederick March. Her fame skyrocketed when, in 1937, she married Clark Gable, known then as the King of Hollywood. Lombard's star continued to rise, appearing in over 70 films, which included thrillers, romantic melodramas, and even horror. Then in 1942, she starred in Ernst Lubitsch's classic wartime comedy, To Be or Not to Be, co-starring Jack Benny. Sadly, Lombard would not live to see the release of the film. While on a tour selling war bonds, a plane she was traveling on crashed in the Nevada mountains, killing all aboard, ending one of the most promising careers in Hollywood. Joining me to discuss To Be or Not to Be and the career of Carol Lombard is author of the book Becoming Carol Lombard, Stardom, Comedy, and Legacy is Olympia Kiriakou. Hi, Olympia. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm very excited to talk about Carol Lombard because as we're, we're going to learn throughout this episode, I learned a lot about this, about Carol Lombard through your book and through watching all of her movies. I'd only seen, I think, one or two of them uh, before we decided to do this. And one of the benefits to me of doing the show is that I like to have a guest on who knows a lot about a particular subject. So then I am then forced to learn more about whoever we're talking about. So I went on a deep dive of Carol Lombard movies in the last month, and I, I very much enjoyed it. Before we talk about Carol Lombard specifically, I want to ask you, uh, why Carol Lombard? Uh, why not becoming Gene Arthur or becoming Margaret Sullivan? What was it about Carol Lombard that, that made you want to write this book? I've always been a fan of Lombard. I got into her films when I was uh, maybe like 19 or so. Um, and for all the scholarship there is about screwball comedy, there's very little that focuses on Carol Lombard specifically. And I always thought that was very peculiar considering during her lifetime, she was considered like the preeminent screwball comedian. There is no one, none of her contemporaries were as closely associated with the genre um, so I, I figured it was important to shine a spotlight on that. And in the process, also focus on her, her other films and her, her stardom itself. That was one of the things I, uh, I specifically, well, was one of the things I appreciated about your book is that it focuses, I mean, it gets into her personal life and we'll talk about that a little <laughs> bit too, but it focuses on the films. And, and that mm-hmm. to me is always the most interesting when I, I've read a lot of biographies and I get a little, I have to say, when I get a book about somebody and it starts with like their grandparents, I get a little like, uh, (laughs) get to the movies. I don't care that their grandfather was a farmer or whatever. I I understand that you want to provide some context, but I always just groan a little when they, when they start, you know, 60 years before the birth of the person we're here to talk about. You said that you discovered her when you were like a teenager. Were you like a big video store person? I mean, or is that, is that where you, how you come of age? I mean, how else are you going to, find her movies really 
No, yeah, exactly. No, I actually, I worked in a video store um, and the store, it's, I'm from Canada originally uh, and the store is now gone, but it had this huge Criterion and old old um, Hollywood section. Very nice. So I kind of basically like spent my entire paycheck at the store all the time and it was really like a, a self-education and through that I discovered, I discovered Carol. Wait, you said you, you spent your, they didn't give you like free rentals? Um, well, it was like a retail store, but. Uh, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, like, I worked at a video store as well. And one of the benefits, it certainly wasn't the pay, was the no. rentals were free. So I, I, you, you just used the phrase uh, sort of taught yourself. I, I feel like I sent myself to film school by binging on all these old movies because we had lots of old movies. Um, oh, so, yeah. No, definitely. You would you discover things you would never otherwise, you know, come across just by browsing the shelves. So. Feel so lucky. What, yeah, I mean, uh, so what was it about what what was it about Carol Lombard that that popped for you against other you know instead of other actresses at the time? I think what's so unique about her is her physical comedy, and she's not afraid to not to to look unglamorous. She's she puts her whole body into her comedy. She makes faces. She's very exuberant, and I thought that was so refreshing and unique from you know some of the other you know classical hollywood comedies that i was watching at the time and that led me down a little bit of a rabbit hole into discovering some of her silent films where uh in some of them she is quite physical so it's such a i think it really makes her stand out um amongst her peers and uh i thought it was really cool did you what did you use uh, film books at the time because i mean that would have been probably pre-internet so you couldn't just look it up on imdb i mean how did you even know what movies she had been in especially silence which are mostly gone at this point oh yeah no i there's um yeah i had the internet i mean i a lot of them are on some the, the major silence are on youtube um and then through research as i went into college and then grad school i you know did re- proper research uh trips to actual archives so over the years from you know in my early 20s till now i've uh, seen most if not all of them that are available wow one of yeah. the things one of the things i really liked about your book was that you managed to get i mean obviously i would imagine it would be very hard writing a biography of someone who has been not around for mm-hmm. 80 years and of course all the people that knew her are no longer around so you're yeah. not you can't rely on contemporary interviews you have to go and dig things up but you found some remarkable first-hand interviews with her where she was mm-hmm. I don't want to say blunt because that's that that has a slight slight pejorative to it but like she was very honest uh you know mm-hmm. she was like very and I'm, I was almost shocked that because you know from what I know of what the little I know of about Hollywood how the Hollywood press machine worked back then I mean they built up these people to where they almost bore no relation to the who the real person was and the studios yeah. didn't care about that. And she seemed to kind of like puncture through that. I mean, you, there was one interview that you quote where she talks about, well, uh, you know, I like to keep busy. And if this movie career goes belly up, which it will eventually, I'll go do something. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that was amazing that she would be yeah. sort of so honest like that. Definitely. And I, I mean, I always say when you're dealing with stars from that classical era, you always have to take what they say in, you know, fan magazine interviews with a grain of salt, because as you said, so much of it is, was controlled by the studios and they wanted to craft specific star images. But I think there is definitely a certain level of, of candor in uh, Lombard's 
uh, interviews that is very refreshing. And she's really straightforward about her career in that way, right? She knew that she wouldn't have a, obviously aging happens in Hollywood so quickly. And so she knew at some point she would have reached that age where she could no longer play those romantic leads. And she had to think about what would I do next? And she was also candid about, you know, her, her, her wealth. In my book, I also talk about how she was very um, happy to pay so much tax because uh, it, love that you know, helped, yeah, <laughs> it helped her country. And she was basically said, you know, I don't really need my money. I'm wealthy enough. And it's, it's <laughs> little things like that, that <laughs> it's, it's not a, a position that movie stars would typically take. So it's a, uh, she definitely was a unique woman. <laughs> I'm wealthy enough is not, not a phrase yeah. anyone says nowadays. <laughs> no, not. that's for sure. You hear that, Jeff Bezos? She was happy to pay taxes. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, all that whole sequence. Well, one of the things, again, and this is just my, uh, you know, my favoritism popping through, but like I am a big fan of FDR. I just, I've mm-hmm. read tons of books about him. I just find him to be an amazingly fascinating figure. And mm-hmm. Every time I, <laughs> every time I go back and I read a profile about some old time movie star, and I find out that they were like a hard right Republican and they didn't like FDR, I'm like, you had the chance to vote for FDR and you I didn't know. do it. Like, <laughs> to me, it's like, oh come on, I always feel so disappointed in them. And one of the other things that you talk about in this book, which again I found fascinating, was you mentioned her progressivism, mm-hmm. very upfront about it. But you you mentioned this thing that I had never heard of, a radio show that she did called The Circle. Yeah. Why don't you describe to everybody what this is? Because I was blown away when I read this. So The Circle was a very short-lived radio show. It was on the air for about six months from January to June 1939 on NBC. And it was described at the time as like a modern version of the Algonquin um, Hall Round Table, where they would they brought together... It's a very weird assortment of actors um, and other, you know, cultural figures to basically talk, do skits. There's only one surviving episode, so I don't really have a grasp of how it, it, you know, how the series progressed, unfortunately. Uh, The one episode is available online, uh, so your listeners and yourself, you can listen to it. It's a little awkward, so I'm not surprised why it was uh, canceled so quickly, um, but on this particular episode, thankfully, that survived, uh, Carol, she does a little skit about, you know, if if women ruled the world, basically, one day we'll have a female president. Um, and she talks essentially about why women make better uh, leaders. Uh, and it, it's, it definitely does speak to her politics um, that she was, I describe her in my book as like a proto-feminist. She was very, I think, progressive in championing gender equality within the context of Hollywood stardom, of course. Um, but she, you know, advocated for women's roles in the workplace. So the the skit itself, again, please listen to it if you can. It definitely fits in with her existence star persona at the time. I was stunned, like I said, when I read that, that that mm-hmm. existed, that any star at the time would subject themselves because they said this was, this was written. This, this material was written by writers, right? You mentioned a sketch. Um, And, but I mean, was it that it was, it was sort of like they were given topics 
And then they mm. would then they would sort of riff on this because you mentioned this thing about where she talks about a, a female president and Cary Grant has a line about, well, she'll never be the father of the country or whatever it is. My awful Cary Grant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, it was scripted, but it's also, yeah, there are these moments that sound at least ad-libbed, right? So uh, I think it's definitely, although the words may not necessarily, they weren't necessarily hers, uh, her spirit is definitely in um, what she's saying. And I think she probably believed what she was saying in that in that segment it's really remarkable that a, that a movie star and she was really at the height of her fame at that point and you, you know that, that mm-hmm. they would she would risk that risk offending somebody like that oh you know? absolutely yeah it's definitely it's a polarizing uh topic today but definitely more so in 1939 right but oh my I think lord that also, i mean that had yeah. to be all male writers i mean there's uh-huh. hardly there was a probably very little chance there was a woman writer on that show Oh, definitely not. No, but that does it, it. I think it speaks to her star persona at the time, and that I think, as I was saying before, compared to her contemporaries, she was very uh, independent, um, sort of headstrong, and that really merged with her off-screen persona as well. So there was that sense of unity, and so it 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 fits the Lombard sort of uh, star persona, if you will. So when you went back and watched her silent films, um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I have I did not have a chance to watch any of those. I watched uh, what's the High Voltage, which is not a silent film, but it's mm-hmm. it's close because it's pretty old. It's like was High Voltage, yeah, thirty one or nineteen twenty nine, twenty nine, yeah, nineteen twenty nine. So I mean, one of the things that that you know Cal Lombard had, aside from of course great physical beauty, I mean, you're just a very mm-hmm. beautiful woman, was she had enormous physical presence on the screen. Right. She was very, very, kind of, like, when you see her on screen, your eyes go right to her. And not just because, mm-hmm. again, she was beautiful, she just had that thing where you're like, there's something about the way she moved, that your eye, yeah. just, she enters the scene and you're, you just go, Whoop, okay, that's, I mean, now I'm focusing on this person. You think that that, I, I mean, imagine that she was in, you know, so many silent films before sound came in, that that was a big help on her case that she had that presence is you didn't need to be able to talk now once she was able to, mm-hmm. it was even more so. You feel that her star wattage, as it were, was able mm-hmm. to show up across these silent films, even though you're never hearing her? Oh, definitely. And it's interesting uh, to see just if you watch this body of work in totality to see how quickly she uh, became a fairly recognizable star um, at the beginning of her silent film career with Max Sennett, she worked for Max Sennett from 1927 to 1929. Uh, she suffered a devastating accident where she basically, uh, she was in a car accident and uh, the windshield of the car shattered and it basically cut. It left a huge gash in her face from her eye basically to her nose. And she thought that would be the end of her career. And it wasn't, of course. Uh, and Max Sennett gave her a big buildup in the wake of that accident. He put, gave her a lot of publicity and gave her really starring roles at a time when she wasn't a star. And I think that really sort of propelled her to that, that level uh, so early in that, that silent film career. And you, you see even in, later, in some of her later um, silent films with with Senate. Uh, there's one I think of in particular called The Swim Princess, where she's given essentially like a a star entrance. The camera focuses on her, um, and her her back is to the camera, and then she turns around, and we we see that it is Carol Lombard, right? And it's it's such an unusual uh, way to 
um, introduced her to audiences, um, you know, at the time, because she was not necessarily a, a huge star, but she was, I guess, a, a micro star within that Senate world. Do you think that she, I mean, one of the things I, I found was uh, interesting about, you know, when I was reading your book and you're talking about the, her career and then she moved into the, into sound films was she was not shy about kind of looking goofy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I could see a lot of actors and actresses don't really want to look that way. Cause it may you know, reduce their sex appeal or whatever, but she was afraid yeah. to kind of look at times like spastic and, that's something obviously she probably had a lot of self-confidence to, to, to be though. I, I was thinking about the, uh, there's a scene in, in my man Godfrey where she gets all excited and she goes to the back of the mm-hmm. the set and she's just jumping up and down like a little kid and she's yeah. ridiculous, but it's really funny and charming. And I could see a lot of actresses might not be comfortable with that kind of, you know, showing that kind of vulnerability on screen maybe. Yeah, and that's what it goes back to what I was saying before, and that she was unaf- she wasn't afraid to you know be unglamorous, right? She uh, she was okay with looking um, you know disheveled if it helped her role, or looking sort of beat up, like for example in you know Nothing Sacred, where she literally gets like a, a soul and jaw because Frederick March's character punches her, right? So um, she definitely put everything into her performances, and she was not that typical, you know, glamorous movie star and that she was wanted to be, look a certain way. She was okay with looking not necessarily unpretty because she was, um, she was always beautiful, but disheveled, I guess, is the best word to describe it sometimes. I'm glad you mentioned the, the violence in Nothing Sacred. I had not seen that film until we decided to do this, and uh, mm-hmm. which is weird because I love Frederick March. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I'm surprised I didn't see it. But I watched, first of all, it was in color which threw me yes. off because it's 1930s. I thought it was colorized. I thought the one I was watching was colorized because I thought, well, this, 1937? And <laughs> it's just a comedy. You know, comedy yeah. colored in 1937, but I watched it. But I was pretty shocked at the level of violence that goes on between the two of them. And then I watched uh, mm-hmm. 20th Century, where mm-hmm. to uh, encourage a good performance out of her playing an actress, um, John Barrymore sticks a pin uh, in her in her rear end, and she screams yeah. like to to our modern eyes. It's like what? That's not acceptable. <laughs> like what? You know? Yeah. Um, in this happened in other films of hers where she was sort of the victim of that kind of violence because it just seemed it, it was it was a little unnerving to see it in two films so close together like that. Uh, I mean, those two are probably the ones where they're like the most explicitly violent. Um, I think that definitely does harken back to her her silent comedy. Nothing Sacred for me is like the pinnacle of that, you know, physical screwball comedy um, in that, you know, she's half the film, she's basically like wearing a robe, she's lying in bed, and then she's getting, you know, uh, thrown about by Frederick March, right? And it's, it's such a physical, visceral performance. And actually, at the time, it was, um, that was sort of like a sticking point when they were making the film. The, if you read the production code file for Nothing Sacred, uh, there's a lot of back and forth uh, between David O. Selznick and the Selznick uh, International Studio and uh, the PCA basically talking about, you know, how far is, is too far with this hmm. physical comedy. Wow. It was, it was, it did make me uncomfortable to see Frederick March essentially punch a woman. That was yeah, like, wow. Okay. Uh, but yeah. uh, you just kind of, all right, just kind of, kind of, kind of roll with it. Um, I found it very interesting that again, it says something about her personality 
and her her generosity of spirit and also her husband's her ex-husband William Powell that mm-hmm. William Powell was the one who suggested her for my man Godfrey and essentially yes. said she's the only one that can bring this off I thought that's that that takes a lot of open-heartedness to do a movie with your ex uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I thought, I thought, well, maybe they just ended up paired together because the studio forced on them. But no, William Powell was the one; it was his idea. And I thought, boy, that that says a lot about both of them that they were able to be divorced and still get along like that. Oh, definitely, yeah. They were married from 1931 to 1933, and um, I think one of the many reasons why they divorced is they realized that they were better friends than mm-hmm. you know lovers, basically. So. It maintained a very close friendship all throughout Lombard's life until she died. Um, she actually helped to nurse him um, when he was—he uh, had cancer in the late 30s, and she um, helped him through that. Um, and so I think it's definitely a testament to that relationship that they built, that they were able to also work together after that divorce. So, uh, And their, their chemistry on screen, I don't think, is affected in any way by whatever was going on off screen. So it's uh, it's nice yeah. to see. Yeah, I said it was. They they said they're great together in my main Godfrey, mm-hmm. but it's just amazing to think that all of the history that builds up with somebody when you've been married to them and now you're they're pretending to fall in love all over again on screen. <laughs> That's just such a strange, strange life uh, for, for an actor. Do you have a particular favorite of her non screwball films? Uh, probably of her dramatic films. Um, probably in name only. It was released in 1939. It, uh, she stars opposite Cary Grant and Kay Francis. It's directed by John Cromwell. I, I'm always saddened, I think, a little bit that we never got a Cary Grant, Carol Lombard screwball comedy because they're, they were so great, uh, both of them in that genre. But uh, in this film, I think they're, they're also quite brilliant. Basically, Kay Francis and Cary Grant, they're... They're technically married, but he begins a relationship with Carol Lombard's character, and it's a whole drama surrounding their 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 romance. And it's, I think, a different side. It, the The film shows a different side to um, to Carol Lombard's perform uh, performative abilities, and it's not the screwball Carol Lombard that um, viewers at the time would have expected. But I think she does a really good job with the role, um, and she was. Uh, a fantastic dramatic actress. Yeah, well, they, yeah, there were two films of hers that I that I caught in the last month that I wanted to ask about. One was I already mentioned High Voltage, uh, mm-hmm. which is I, as I watched it, I thought Quentin Tarantino had to have seen this movie uh, because <laughs> it, I mean, he's seen a lot of movies. That's not hard to that's not hard to, to find. But like, it's about uh, there's there's a there's a crook. Carol Lombard is uh, the a criminal. And, yeah. under, and she's she's being escorted by uh, is he a private detective or is is he a sheriff? I forget. Yeah, he's a sheriff. Yeah, the sheriff. And they're on this they're they're in this uh, this bus, and it gets caught in a snowstorm. So they have to hold mm-hmm. up in this like cabin. And I thought, well, this is this is the hateful eight essentially. <laughs> <laughs> this, this yeah, is- I never thought of that actually. Yeah. Yeah, I was just like, wow. Okay. Uh- and Quentin Tarantino has seen a lot of movies and he takes from movies left and right. But as I watch it, I thought, oh, okay. And so I, I like the movie. But the other one that I really wanted to ask about was Supernatural. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that was a film that I had only known about as a poster. It has that great poster of Carol. Yeah, where she's holding the, the, the crystal ball. The crystal ball, yeah. And I had a book of movie posters called Graven Images, which was all 
classic horror movie posters from the 30s to the 50s. And it's a beautiful painting of her, you know, leaning forward and she's underlit. But I had never seen the movie and I was not familiar with it at all. And then I was like, geez, I couldn't find it anywhere streaming. And then I saw it's on Blu-ray. I'm like, wow, this is great. So I went and bought it and I watched it. And it's unique still for 1937 because outside of Dracula and Frankenstein, most horror movies were still not really leaning into the supernatural element. It was all about, oh no, it's a crook. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a scam. They, you know, yeah. it's somebody pretending to be a ghost. But no, this is straight up about possession, body, yeah. bodily possession. I really liked the movie, but it was fun to just see somebody of her stature in a horror movie in 1937. Do you, what did you think of that movie? It's so unique um, because, as you said, most people associate Lombard with screwball comedy, right? So to see her in the, you know, she's like the spirit possessing the, was it Ruth Rogan? I think the main character is. Um, it's it's so different from anything um, that you'd find in Lombard's body of work. That was the only horror film she, she made. Um, I really, I like it. It's not one of my favorites, but I think it's definitely one of her more memorable uh, pre-code films, uh, mostly because it is, uh, a genre that she didn't really dabble in all that often. Unfortunately, I wish she had made more. Yeah, I really, really liked it. It was just, they said, it's so funny just to see. It's like uh, those early Warner Brothers films that were horror movies with like Humphrey Bogart in them before he was yeah. Humphrey Bogart. And you're just like, what is Humphrey Bogart's in a, what is Dr. X? What is he doing in this movie? You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're used to seeing, you know, Bella Lugosi or Boris Karloff, but then you see Carol Lombard and you're like, Oh, okay. All right. And by the way, I noticed with Supernatural, it was the only film of hers that I saw where you could see mm-hmm. a little bit of a scar on her face from the mm-hmm. car accident that you mentioned. I feel like yes. in every other movie, she was lit in a way that they hit it. But there's a couple of scenes where you can just see the scar. And I thought, oh, well, there. I didn't know about the car accident until I read your book. But I thought, oh, there it is. You could see it. Right yeah. There. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's very rare to find to, to see that scar. Uh, they, they've hit it. They hit it well. Yeah, like I said, it's it's a it's a terrific movie. Again, it's not streaming anywhere, unfortunately. And by the title, it's hard to find because it's supernatural. You're, of course, you're going to find five thousand episodes of that. TV yeah, show. <laughs> not very you're unique. Find the movie, yeah. but uh, but luckily, said the movie is is on Blu-ray. So so yeah, it's a it's a really interesting career. I didn't know much about it at all until I, until I read your book, and so I was only familiar with again, uh, uh, my man Godfrey and To Be or Not to Be. Now, speaking of mm-hmm. To Be or Not To Be, which, of course, is her, her final film, yeah. I really do need to thank you for agreeing to do this episode because I saw To Be or Not To Be 30 years ago when I worked at the video store, like I mentioned, right? Okay. And I mm-hmm. watched it, and I was like, yeah, it was all right. That was my, eh, all right. Then I watched it again in anticipation of this recording, and I'm like, this is a masterpiece. It is. What? What was I, what did I miss 30 years ago? <laughs> I mean, maybe it's because we have Nazis again or something. And it seems a little yeah. more frightening, but to be or not to be, as I mentioned, directed by Ernst Lubitsch is, it is just a masterpiece. And obviously it is tragic that she passed away so young mm-hmm. at the same time. If you're going to go out on a movie, this is a movie to go out on. Cause this thing is just, I mean, it is one of the best comedies i've ever seen and then you layer on top of the fact that it has all of this political commentary and then on top of that you realize it was made while the nazis were taking over europe it I could know. not be more timely when did you first see it uh i think i saw it in my early 20s and like you i think at 
my very first viewing, I thought, okay, it's it's good, but over time, it's grown to become my my favorite uh, Lombard film, in part because I think her performance is just spectacular, and I think she just fits so well into that Lubitsch uh, style. And I wish she had had the opportunity to work with him more. Uh, but I think besides Carol Lombard, I think it's just such, as you said, a fantastic, unfortunately, still rather timely comedy. And it was, as you said, you think about when it was made, uh, it was filmed in late 1941, before the U.S. officially entered uh, the war, but released mere months after we had joined uh, the, the war effort. So it was so such a provocative film for its time. And I think it has held up so well all these years later. Yeah. Oh, sadly. <laughs> yeah, it has. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. For anyone who hasn't seen it, I wanted, I'm going to give it just a brief plot description. So it, it's, it's about Joseph and Maria Tura played by Jack Benny. And of course, Carol Lombard, uh, they are the leads in an acting company based in Warsaw, Poland. While rehearsing a satirical play called Gestapo, the company's told the play cannot go on lest it inflame tensions between Poland and Germany. They continue performing Hamlet with Joseph uh, noticing a walkout during the immortal to be or not to be soliloquy. The walkout is a young serviceman named Subinski who uses this moment to go visit Maria backstage, whom he has fallen in love with. Maria humors the young man, but Subinski wants Maria to leave her husband and her career to marry him. Before this can go any further, word breaks out that Germany has invaded Poland. Sobinski leaves to join the fight with the RAF. Later, Sobinski and the other men meet Professor Selecki, a Polish resistance leader who is returning to Warsaw. The men give him notes for their family members still in Poland, but Sobinski grows suspicious of the man when he doesn't seem aware of the tourists, the most famous actors in Poland. This leads to an ever-growing thicket of complications and duplicities as Joseph Tura and his company try to fool Professor Selecki into revealing his true loyalties, Sobinski tries to rescue Maria from being pegged as a member of the resistance, and Joseph trying, tries to get in between his wife and Sobinski. Plot builds until the entire theater company gets to perform the roles of a lifetime with their very lives at stake. As I mentioned, Carol Lombard plays Maria Tura, Jack Benny plays Joseph Tura, Robert Stack plays Lieutenant Sobinski, Felix Bressart plays Greenberg, Lionel Atwell plays Rawich, Stanley Ridges is Professor Selecki, the great Sig Roman is Colonel Earhart, and Tom Dugan plays Bronsky. As, and as I said earlier, it was directed by Ernst Lubitsch. The story was by Lubitsch and Melchior Lengel. I don't know how you pronounce that. And screenplay by Edwin Justice Mayer. So, I mean, boy, this movie, it is, like I said, it, it is so, the opening scene where they lead you to think that this is Hitler walking yeah. the streets of Warsaw and it causes, causes a stir. And you got the narrator saying, you know, making, who is this little man? It's, it's so, to me, it's startling to think of what it must have felt like in 1942. This film was released, released in March 1942. It was pushed back a month uh, because Carol Lombard had passed away and they wanted some distance between those, those two events. But how, what's, how startling it must have been for an audience in 1942 to see anybody, any Nazi portrayed in a comical light Mm -hmm. uh, had to just be really, really startling, knowing it was literally happening as they were watching the film. Absolutely, and the film it was it was generally well received by critics, although some took offense to, the, to exactly what you were saying that the they felt that it, the comedy was in poor taste, and that by portraying the Nazis as buffoons or as incompetent, that you somehow sort of uh, lessened their their evil. 
And uh, Lubitsch actually, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times kind of pushing back on that. Um, it was published not long after uh, the film was released. And he basically says, well, uh, I ha actually have it here. I'll read you a little bit of, a little bit of it. He says, um, my Nazis are different. They passed uh, that brutal stage long ago. Brutality, flogging, and torturing have become their daily routine. They talk about it with the same ease as a salesman referring to the sale of a handbag. Um, so essentially he was, and in, in the, um, in the op-ed at large, he makes the larger point that it's, it's not, not offensive and that if you're, if you are laughing along with the comedy, are you not just as guilty? So he was kind of holding a mirror back hmm. on, on critics and on audiences and asking, you know, what is, can comedy be that provocative? What is bad taste? Um, so it was a very interesting conversation that was happening at that time. And, um, I think it still is uh, an interesting way to think about this film. Well, yeah, and of course, uh, the, what many consider the master of bad taste, Mel Brooks, uh, would yeah. go on to remake this movie in 1984 yes. with Van Bancroft, which I remember seeing in the in the theater. One of the things I, I always find interesting about these movies, any movie, any comedic movie that features Nazis, is mm -hmm. you're walking such a tightrope because it's a comedy. And it needs mm -hmm. to be funny because, of course, if a comedy isn't funny, it's not anything really. But you also want to portray, you also want to make fun of the Nazis as clowns because, of course, they are clowns. Mm -hmm. How do we know they're clowns? Because they're Nazis. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, they're dressing up in these with swastikas. That means you're inherently a clown. At the same time, just because you're a clown doesn't mean you can't cause a lot of damage. Yeah, uh, I think that this movie manages to hit that mark where. It shows you the inner workings, the inner bureaucracies of the Nazi mm. movement, and mm. it highlights how absurd it all is because, nope, there's this running gag about them that uh, Napoleon, uh, that Bismarck is a herring, yeah. Napoleon, what was Napoleon? Napoleon is, is, is this, and Hitler is going to end Brandy. up being, Yeah, and, you know, yeah. of course, every time a Nazi tells another Nazi that joke, the second Nazi is like, that's, you can't say that about the Fuhrer. And they're, they're <laughs> constantly like ratting on each other because yeah. they're a bunch of goddamn clowns. I mean, that's the way, you know, that's the yeah. way it works. But yet you have to convey that they are quite dangerous because they are willing to commit to violence mm -hmm. uh, at the drop of a hat. And there are some scenes here, again, Ernst Lubitsch, man. I mean, again, not a bulletin. Ernst Lubitsch, great director. You know, that's not yeah. a hot take or anything. But boy... <laughs> The scene for how funny this movie is, the scenes where there are Nazis that could get the drop on either Jack Benny or mm -hmm. Carol Lombard, they have a real tension to them that is very yeah. unsettling in the middle of this broad comedy. Yeah. I mean some of the some of the jokes really sort of almost like punch you in the face with the reality that, you know, this is a comedy, but what they're joking about is horrific, right? There's yeah. One line, um, uh, Colonel Earhart says to Jack Benny's character, uh, they're talk Jack Benny's character asks, you know, have you ever seen Joseph Tura play on the stage? And Colonel Earhart replies, yes, I saw him once. What uh, he did to Shakespeare, we're doing now to Poland. So it's like <laughs> these moments where they're like puncturing the, the comedy with this like dark reality. And as I can only imagine being a viewer at the time watching this, it's, was probably you're you're laughing but it's also quite unsettling right 
Oh man, I I laughed so hard. It's near the end of the movie. Right? I don't mean to jump around as much, but it's near the end of the movie where they're on the plane, and uh, you've got you've got the the, the, the <laughs> member of the company dressed. You've got Bronsky dressed as Hitler still, and they're on the plane, yeah. and they tell the two Nazi pilots to come back, and of course they think he's really Hitler, and yeah. he says to them, "Jump out of the plane without yeah. parachutes," and they do it without a moment's hesitation. And he goes, such accommodating fellows. And it's like, what a dark joke because he just told those two to jump to their deaths. And they do it without a moment's hesitation. And I roared so hard at that joke. And just, again, such accommodating fellows. And it's just like, that's a really dark joke because this guy just told them to kill themselves and they did it. And it's like, yeah, because they're idiots. Yeah. Because Because they're clowns. That, oh my God, it is so, so funny. Oh, that's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Another one that sort of reminds me of what you're saying before is uh, in a scene between Carol and uh, Professor Selecki, they're kissing and immediately she raises, after they kiss, she raises, Carol's character raises their hand and sort of mockingly says, Heil Hitler. And uh, Professor Selecki does the same. He says, Heil Hitler. And you just think in this moment of, for him, passion that they're, (laughs) Um, you know, praising Hitler. It's just like this ideology has infested every aspect of their being. And I think that's sort of a, a, a very uh, smart way of undercutting that, that mentality. Oh, it's, it's clearly such a loyalty test. Cause it's like, yeah. it's almost like every Nazi is trying to say Heil Hitler a little more forcefully than the other one. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're always trying to outdo each other. Like, Oh no, I'm more pro Hitler than you are. Cause I say it with a little more, a little more emphasis or whatever. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's absolutely uh, absurd. Something else I noticed when watching this movie and that outside of uh, Carol Lombard's, Maria Torres, um, not her maid, but like her makeup person. She's the only woman in this movie. She's the only woman in the entire film. And that, and first of all, I thought, again, I thought it was interesting that she is really the only movie star. Uh, Jack Benny was not known as a, not even really known as an actor. And I did read about that. He was incredibly nervous about being yeah. in this movie. And, and Ernst Lubitsch was like, don't worry. I know you can do this. Just do it. You know, you'll be fine. And it's interesting because Jack Benny did have somewhat of a film career after mm-hmm. this. He was in movies like George Washington slept here. The horn blows at midnight. But if you look through his filmography, he's almost always playing Jack Benny. Uh, yes. This is one of the rare times he's playing a character. What did you think of his, his performance? Oh, I love it. I think it's it's hilarious. Uh, the the ego and sort of delusion that he uh, is able to convey uh, with his with his uh, performance is is hilarious, and I think it balances off so well with that uh, Carol's with Carol's character, who is equally uh, egotistical, but in a very different way. Yes. Uh, Jack Benny's character is almost like oblivious to the to everything around him, where Car- Carol's character has a little bit of sort of um, uh, more sense than him. But it's it's just uh, he's brilliant. <laughs> he is very very funny at it, and, uh, and mm-hmm. they are a. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know if they were completely a believable couple. Like, I don't know if I would no, see no. her, someone going with, with Joseph Tura, but at the same time, you're like, well, but they were two actors coming up together and they were maybe, there was a certain amount of falling in love due to just sort of, uh, they, they were close to one another. You know what I mean? There probably weren't that many actors in Poland. Yeah. So therefore, you know, they had kind of like a proximity relationship a little bit. And um, this, all the scenes with, with uh, her and, 
Robert Stack, where he mm. plays Lieutenant Sabinski, and he's fallen in love with her. I mm. thought that was also really fascinating in that he has fallen in love with her persona, yeah. not the real person, because all that he knows about her is what he reads in the fan magazines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this, there's this. And, and she, we, yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, and she's happy to play along with that illusion, too. Mm-hmm. There's a, the, 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 one of the first scenes where they're in her, her dressing room, and he says, oh, I saw this picture of you with a plow. And he said, oh, I can't remember where you were. And she snaps that quickly. Oh, it was in the Chronicle. So she's, like, indulging that fantasy that he has about uh, this, this actress. And it's, 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 I love their chemistry. Do you feel like that was perhaps some sort of commentary on, on like we talked about earlier, how movie stars' personas were so crafted? Because you see, like, obviously, Maria Tura is thousands of miles away from Hollywood, but yet that is still going on even for a theater actress in Warsaw, Poland, that she's got a mm-hmm. persona that is being pushed, and Soblinski has completely fallen in love with it. Even And when he's talking to her, I almost get the sense he's not even really listening to her. Like he's not really listening to what mm-hmm. she's saying. He's just gaga over finding, get, finally getting to meet this woman. And he's not really paying attention to what she wants. Cause he talks about like, well, we're going to run away together. And it's like, where does he get that from? Like, she's like, wait, but it's, but a time that she realizes how deep he's into this. She's yeah. like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Cause he's like, well, of course you're going to quit your career because you know, you're, you don't want to, you don't want to work. You'll just, I'll be the breadwinner. You're like, what are you talking about? Where are you getting all this from? Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's, uh, it's, I think it's definitely a commentary on that sort of allure of stardom, whether it's, you know, theatrical stardom in Poland or Hollywood stardom, right? Where we become so enamored by these images that are being sold to us. And, uh, uh, Robert Stack's character, he's, he's fallen in love with Maria Tura, the star, not necessarily Maria Tura, the person. And, mm-hmm. um, he's, he's sort of blinded by her fame and he's in in that in the scenes in her dressing room he's sort of basking in that sort of grandeur of her of her stardom that he's undoubtedly uh been in love with for years what do you think about that she talks about that the, she's going to go with him uh in a plane uh she's <laughs> going to take me ten thousand feet in the air like is do you feel that in this and i wasn't know if i was able to fully get a sense of it does she do you think that it's just she perceives it as harmless flirting and she doesn't mm-hmm. understand that he's as again, like I said, as deep into it as he is, because it's that is a little like you're really going to go up on a plane with this guy. Like that's yeah. probably, you know, sending some mixed mixed messages. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think she uh, she's definitely uh, probably enjoys his attention because uh, Joseph Torres is just so enamored with himself and his own stardom. <laughs> so I think to have this young handsome aviator pay you so much attention it's it's probably very flattering for her and only when he does say to her you know we'll run away together does she kind of take a step back and realize oh my god what have I gotten myself into (laughs) (laughs) we can't really do this and she says you know I love my husband it's a shame that I'm guessing there really are no there really are no comments on the record from her about what it was like to make this movie because of course she passed away before mm-hmm. it had been released. So there probably wasn't time to go back and interview her about it, you know, as an older film, because it wasn't, she didn't live to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would have been fascinated to know what she thought about working with Jack Benny as a partner. Cause I mean, after you worked with Jimmy Stewart and Fred McMurray yeah. and Cary Grant and Frederick March and William Powell, like the biggest of the big names, 
to then switch gears and work with a guy who was not known as an actor. I wonder, I wonder what her read on it was in terms of any given moment in the sharing the scenes with him. I think generally she, from all I've read, she had a very enjoyable experience making the film. She became very close friends with Robert Stack and she was, and also friends with Jack Benny. Unfortunately, she never actually got to see the finished film. They were scheduled to have a sort of a rough cut screening on January 19th. And of course she died on the January 16th. So <sighs> I, I, it's sad to, to think that she never got to see this, this brilliant work. Um, but I think it was a generally a joyful experience for her. I had read uh, on IMDb, and you don't necessarily can't always trust that, but like supposedly there's a line in the original script where she says something about, um, I guess it's related to going up with Slabinski, where she's like, what can happen on a plane? And they mm-hmm. took that line out in light of what happened to her. Allegedly, yes. I've often wondered about that. I've read the production code file for this film, and they've never made mention that any line like that was um, taken out. So it's, it's possible. I don't know if that's a little bit of sort of the mythology and tragedy surrounding her death, that that story came about. But um, if, if it is indeed true, um, I'm, I'm glad they took it out because it's, it's definitely in poor taste. Yeah. It would have sort of hung over. You know, I always wonder what it would be like, what it was like for audiences to see this movie, a comedy knowing she had already passed away. I mean, that's happened. Yeah. That's happened since John Candy, mm-hmm passed away and then one of his films was released afterwards and uh chris farley that happened to as well but it's it's still rare Uh, and i just wonder how did that did did it hurt the ability to laugh at her even -hmm. though she's very funny in the movie knowing that she had passed away so young i wonder how that you mentioned that it did well like it was a fairly successful film yeah both critically and at the box office it did uh very well she got great reviews for her performance i think uh a number of uh, reviewers said this is sort of Lombard at the top of her game. It was a nice, it's a sort of a poignant way to to end her career. So it, her performance was well received, um, which is nice to nice to see at the time. I can imagine it was probably you know bittersweet to to see her on screen so so um, so close after her death because it, while it is such a wonderful performance, it's still there's this you know sadness when you watch the film. You can't help but think about her death when you watch this film. Um, one of the things I noticed, uh, and this is just like a minor detail, but it, it sort of jumps out of you when you know it again in, in retrospect. There's a scene where um, Maria has a scheduled meeting with uh, Colonel Concentration Camp Earhart, and they get a lot of mm-hmm. mileage out of how happy he is that he's known as Concentration Camp Earhart. And you see his appointment book, and uh, at the bottom of the list, you see other appointments that he's got and one of them is listed as an appointment with schindler yes and yes. you know it's like uh, wow you know like we know it now in light of the film and the history but that's uh, i mean i'm get i'm guessing that oscar schindler was known uh to people uh outside of the, the small area i mean it was known enough to the writers and ernst lubitsch for, for mm-hmm. them to include that in the detail but boy that when you first when you when you notice that it really is startling to see it in this movie you're like oh, that's they're talking about a real guy i know who that is yeah definitely there it's as we were saying before it's these moments that despite all of the the fantastic comedy that really brings you back to the harsh reality of what they're what they're joking about right it's this incredibly heavy 
awful topic that it, they smack you in the face with this in, in different ways um, throughout the film. And that's a good example of that. Yeah. The scene where uh, Solesky, uh, the, the, he realizes that he has been fooled and that he's not really meeting with the Nazi high command. And it is in fact, Joseph Tour and the rest of the, mm-hmm. the, the crew. And he tries to escape because they've dressed the theater up as yeah. Nazi high command. And then he runs into the theater and man, you watch that sequence. And again, you're like, Ernst Lubitsch, he really could have just done a straight-up thriller if he had wanted to. The sequence oh, where yeah. they're trying to find Solitsky, and then they shine the light on him. They're like, turn the house lights on, and they sh- and then they shine the spotlight as he's walking across the stage. It is as crackajack as any thriller you would have seen at the time. And again, the fact that yeah. it sits in the middle of this goofy comedy, and it's all tribute to Ernst Lubitsch, man. Again, hot take. Yeah. The guy knew what he was doing. <laughs> he did, definitely. Yeah, that's it's such a, a tense scene, right? There's there's when he when it, uh, the spotlight shines onto the stage and you see this Selecki, um, his his body he comes out from behind the the curtain. It's like silence, and you just see him, you know, raise his hand, Kyle Hitler, and then he he drops to the ground. It's such a a tense moment in this otherwise very um, you know satirical film. Uh, that again brings you back to that reality of oh my god, there this is about you know something so heavy. Yeah, this is really yeah, this is really going on for these people. Uh, I said it, it's yeah. absolutely remarkable. And you know, I, I met not to I hate to keep bringing this up, but like I mentioned earlier, that I feel like Quentin Tarantino must have seen High Voltage because the plot is so similar mm-hmm. to. I feel like he had to have seen this film because the ending of this film reminds me a lot of Inglorious Bastards where you've yeah. got the Nazi high command in a theater and they're going to pull now, of course, in that field, they're trying to kill Hitler. They're not mm-hmm. doing that here, but nevertheless, it's this idea that the, it's the Nazis are coming to their turf, which is yeah. a theater, this sort of sacred place for these people. And the Nazis are despoiling it by their presence. And mm-hmm. our heroes are going to get the one up on them uh, by, you know, dressing up as Hitler and fooling the Nazi high command and sneaking around and the, the you know, and but I, again, I couldn't help but think, boy, this it feels like that. And the, again, for a comedy, this film has that similar tension where you know you know that the tourists are going to get away with it. You know they're, mm-hmm. they're not going to die in this comedy, but it <laughs> has that it has that feeling of like, oh, is, is this really going to work? Because the stakes are so high for them. Oh, definitely right when uh, they're in that sort of in, in a circle. Well, Hitler's in the actual theater; they're outside the door, and uh, uh, Felix Bressard's going through that soliloquy um it's it's a very tense moment because you think one wrong move and everything's spoiled uh so as you said the stakes are so high yeah i said it's it really you said the the film really has a a marvelous edge to it uh considering it is Mm -hmm. a it is a comedy i don't i don't think i've ever seen i hate to say this i don't think i've ever seen another ernst lubitsch movie uh i know he he did um, films like what he the shop around the corner and yeah. Notchka and Heaven Can Wait, but I don't think I've seen any of those movies. Have you? Have you seen any of those? Oh yeah, I love his work. He's such a a talented director. If you haven't seen, have you seen uh, Trouble in Paradise? No, I've never seen that one either. Oh, def- Oh, you have to explore his his work. Uh, Design for Living is another good one. I think his right now there's a Criterion uh, series of film of his films. Um, so you can definitely check them out there. It's uh, Angel, Ninochka, um, you know, Clooney Brown. There's, he's such a incredible director. 
He died young, too. He passed away in 1947, so yeah, another career cut short. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's tragic. All these wonderful people, they have, uh, they die so young. Yeah, oh, my goodness. Um, and I, I, when I had read about that Jack Benny couldn't do his radio show mm-hmm. um, the week that Carol Lombard died because he was so upset and they delayed it or something like that. Yeah, they just uh, they just played music basically throughout the entire episode. He was too devastated to you know perform, so it's just like symphony music, which is uh, I guess a, a touching tribute to Carol. But I can imagine because they became such good friends, it is so devastating to him to to lose her. Do you consider uh, to be or not to be um, a screwball comedy? I'm not exactly sure of the definitions of. Of what what is considered? I think of screwball comedy as being more physical, being more mm-hmm. uh, that kind of. Stuff. Do you think that to be or not to be fits in that genre, or do you think it's it sits outside of it as something else? Um, I think I think it sort of toes the line a little bit. I consider it more of like a, a black comedy than a screwball. If anything, um, it's definitely much darker in its its theme and its subject matter than anything in Lombard's filmography. So I think I would separate it from you know that her her screwball body of work um but it has some sort of screwy undertones to it still um and just sort of the absurdity of some of the situations that the 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 tourists and the acting troupe find themselves in so i think it sort of borrows from screwball well it's not necessarily screwball if you want to be sort of official about it right the stuff with the uh the fake beard seleski's fake beard feels very screwball Definitely, yeah, yeah. There's those types of moments, and just the uh, I think you know Colonel Earhart's entire character is sort of very um, screwy. Um, oh Lord, Sig so Rudman, oh. he's fantastic. Anytime you needed a Nazi, uh, you get <laughs> you got Sig Rudman because he was in Stalag Seventeen, and he had that wonderfully mellifluous voice which sounded yeah. like a cartoon character, and yet he was always playing a Nazi, which is this sort of weird discrepancy and of course i mean again talk about a black comedy this is a comedy where a guy a nazi shoots himself and as he is dying still manages to rattle off one more repeater of a joke where he's constantly blaming his underling for for (laughs) screwing things up i mean and you literally hear the joke as the body hits the floor which again (laughs) that's like that's a, a dark joke yeah commitment to the end yeah yeah uh Raman's a brilliant actor. His face is just so malleable <laughs> and oh, yeah, his voice, as you said, is just iconic. Oh man. Yeah. He's great. He's just, Oh, just absolutely marvelous. Um, one of the thing I, I wanted to talk about beyond to be or not to be was like Carol Lombard's legacy. Um, I went, <laughs> I, I saw it's up on YouTube. There was the, the, uh, the, was it a TV movie or a movie? The Gable and Lombard biopic. Is that a feature uh, film or? Yes, it was. A, uh, it was a actual, yeah, feature feature film with uh, James Brolin and Jill Clayburgh uh, from 1976. Yeah. yeah, right. Um, yeah. What do you What do you think of that? Because I I watched <laughs> it. You know, it's sort of funny. It's you know you kind of watch the you see how movies move on. Like every decade is obsessed with a certain period before yeah. it, and as time moves on, the decades get moved up. And the 70s were obsessed with the silent era. It was like yeah. there was so many movies about that. And I swear every movie, every movie set in that silent era has got to have that horn sound effect from those jalopy. <laughs> like that's, that's yeah. just every single movie. And I think I hear that horn 
17 times in the kid gable lombard movie um <laughs> what did you what did you think of that as do you feel like it really was able what do you think of joe claver's performance do you think she captured something about carol lombard or, or, or what? um no <laughs> <laughs> um i i can't say and Gable and Lombard. I think <laughs> Jill Clayberg, I, it's through no fault of her own. I think just the, the script is just awful. And I, I she's a fantastic actress, so I sure. don't want to lay any blame at her feet. Um, the film's just not good. Uh, it really feeds into this uh, mythology um, behind Carol and Clark's marriage and that they were somehow this, you know, idyllic golden couple. Um, and it's historic inaccurate which is the least of my concerns but it's also just really paints these very superficial portraits of both um gable and lombard and uh it's uh yeah it's one that i would unless you're like a completionist and you want to watch everything that has to do with carol lombard i would definitely avoid it it's a <laughs> it's a very long awful biopic <laughs> it is long i i i, I did a couple of times while I was watching it thinking maybe I should just watch a Lombard movie instead of this, but I don't know. It was like, it was on YouTube and I was just sort of fascinated because you see all these character actors that you're familiar with in the seventies playing people that, you know, um, yeah. and I, I would imagine Jill Clayburgh had a slightly easier job because Carol Lombard doesn't exist past 1942. There's just not as much mm-hmm. to compare her to as opposed to yeah. poor James Brolin playing Clark Gable. Yeah. I mean, you're just doomed. You can't. There's difference. One yeah, Clark Gable. Yeah, situation. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Exactly. No, the, he he resembles him fairly well, but um, I mean, the persona, his his mannerisms, his, his manner of speaking, it's nothing like Clark Gable. So you're really just watching like uh, an impression of Clark Gable more than anything. Right. It's, it's, it's hard to sit through. <laughs> So in terms of, of Carol Lombard's legacy, I mean, one mm-hmm. of the things, I, again, I was surprised about when I, when I looked her up in, in getting your book, there are a lot of books about Carol Lombard. There are more yeah. than I would have expected um, mm-hmm. because, for, again, for someone whose career was cut short and so many of her films are silence and are, you know, like a, a little hard to find or whatever, there are more f- books about her than a lot of her contemporaries, Mm-hmm. And what do you have any insight as to why that might be? Is it because the career was cut short and it's it's so tantalizing to imagine what her career might have morphed into had she gotten older and had a chance to be in other types of movies? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, building off of what we were just talking about, I think because she was married to Clark Gable and uh, their sort of their iconicity as a, as a couple, I think that really has sustained a lot of interest in her as a, as a star. Um, and a lot of people may not necessarily know Carol Lombard's work, but they'll know the name Carol Lombard be- because of her marriage. Um, and so I think that's sort of like an entryway into uh, people maybe exploring her her career. Um, but as I've talked about in my book, and I, I'm very open about this, I think that that has somehow overshadowed a lot of, of uh, discussions that we could be having about her her other work. So I think there's a lot of focus on her her relationship with Gable, and that's come at um, the detriment to a little more of an exploration to other aspects of her life. Yeah, I mean, it's she was married to William Powell and married to Clark Gable mm-hmm. and married to very famous men. But that's, I mean, you know, a lot of us meet our romantic partners through work, and that's what mm-hmm. they do. You know, it's just yeah. they just happen to do it in public. 
Yeah. And that, it, it, because they're, they were so popular individually as stars, uh, they're them together. They were as a, as a star couple, they were even more popular, uh, you know, together. So the, the publicity machine, the studios, uh, publicity departments, the fan magazines, they really sold, uh, this relationship, um, to the public as some sort of like fairy tale. And I think a lot of that narrative has really, uh, continued to this day. And that's, uh, sort of a big component of her legacy. Um, and I think it's certainly important. I'm not trying to, you know, erase Clark Gable from her narrative, but um, there's more to Carol Lombard than just being, you know, Clark Gable's wife. Right. I mean, nobody, nobody would do a profile of Clark Gable from the angle of, oh, he was Carol Lombard's husband. Nobody, exactly. You, know, you, <laughs> you would yeah. talk about the films. You talk about, you know, I mean, so yeah, nobody would. But just on a, a sort of technical note, like when you were researching your book and you, you managed to find, you mentioned these fan magazines, you found all these interviews where, you know, Cal Lombard, is she the perfect wife for Clark Gable? <laughs> and you talk about like the studio notes. I mean, how did you find a lot of this stuff considering it's, it was stuff, it was stuff meant to be ephemeral, you know, it was not meant to be kept 80 years later. I mean, is this stuff around for you to, Dig up. I mean, how much detective work did you have to perform to find some of this material? Actually, it is quite, um, it's readily available. And I have to give a plug to uh, Media History Digital Library. It's this, it, it's the most incredible online resource. It basically, it's digitized fan magazines. They have a huge collection from like the, the 1910s through to the, the, the 60s. Wow. Um, it's through... Uh, uh, the Wisconsin Center uh, for Film and Theater Research. Uh, they, I encourage uh, all of your listeners to visit this website. You can read basically every, every fan magazine that was produced from that studio era online. So um, I think it's wonderful to have these accessible resources. So, you know, you, not everyone has the capability to go or the, the resources to go to, you know, a physical archive. So to be able to do uh, research from home, from, you know, from school. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. That's remarkable. That's amazing that someone would think mm. to start scanning movie fan magazines from 1915. Why would anyone think to do yeah. that? That's just amazing. That's a, that, yeah. is, that sounds like a marvelous resource. It is. It's fantastic. That is really cool. So in terms of her, again, her legacy, um, obviously mm. I was, you're going to suggest to be or not to be. And that film, by the mm. way, for everybody is readily available. It's on HBO max because mm-hmm. it's part of the Criterion Collection. And so you can, if you have that, you can watch it. What other films of hers would you recommend to someone who is like, oh, you know what? This sounds interesting. I don't really know much about Carol Lombard. What movies should I start with? What ones would you think are the good ones to kind of get into in the beginning? I would begin um, with her screwball comedies. So My Man Godfrey, t- uh, 20th Century, Nothing Sacred. And then my personal, besides to be or not to be, my personal favorite is Hands Across the Table, uh, which uh, Carol co-stars with Fred, uh, Fred McMurray. It was released in 1935. Another fantastic Fred uh, McMurray-Carol Lombard pairing is True Confession from 1937. Um, a wonderful pre-code uh, is Virtue from 1932. It co-stars Pat O'Brien. Um, and then if you want to dig a little more into her dramatic films, as I said before, In Name Only is fantastic. Um, and another wonderful one is made for each other with Jimmy Stewart. So I would, I would start there. 
All right. They certainly paired her up with every big name. So by the way, she did like five movies with Fred McMurray or something. Yeah. They, they're, yeah, they're uh, quite the pair. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. I mean, we, in an, in an era where that's the other, Oh, that was the other thing I wanted to mention. I I almost forgot was, I mean, she, her career ran when she was 13 and she passed away when she was what? 32, 31, 33. Yeah. 33. So she was in films for 20 years. She, as I mentioned, she did, yeah. she did 70 movies in yeah. 20 years, <laughs> 70. Oh, uh, yeah. what, what an enormous opportunity to hone your craft when you yeah. can do it that much. I mean, nowadays actors do what? One, two movies a year, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. some, of, some of the other most lesser stars do like direct to video or direct to streaming films now. But I mean, no wonder you could get good at your craft if you do 70 movies in 20 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah, exactly. From 1930 to 1937, she was under contract to Paramount. And you could, if you look through her filmography in those early years, she's doing maybe like three, four, even like five movies a year. So she was very busy at Paramount and she was loaned out um, quite frequently to other studios as well. So she worked very hard in uh, her, uh, her early career to, to hone that craft. It's unbelievable. I, the one time, I don't know how much I believe in this, but I am sort of fascinated at buildings that have rich histories. Cause I like to think of like, I don't know, is there some sort of accumulated, you know, mm-hmm. like spirituality to a building that when it's housed this much. And there was one time I got to go to the Paramount lot and mm-hmm. I, and I walked around and I looked at, they had the stages, they had a lot of the stages open and I saw guys with, you know, carrying around wood and, you know, building things. And it just made me think, good Lord, like, how many movies have been shot in the, how many famous people have been in this building, you know, yeah. dating back to the twenties or whenever Paramount started. I'm like, they made white Christmas in this building, you know, like mm-hmm. I'm fascinated. Like all of these huge figures of pop culture history have walked these same streets. I just found it fascinating. So yeah, they did that. Like Carol Lombard spent a lot of time on the Paramount lot that much mm-hmm. making that many movies. Uh, to me, that's just oh, yeah. utterly fascinating. Yeah, well, it's a good relationship with that uh, studio. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, well, Olympia, I mean, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Carol Lombard. Uh, as I said at the top of the show, part of the reason I do this podcast is to, because with streaming now, we all have 97 streaming mm-hmm. channels that we pay for. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I can't decide what to watch because there's too much to pick from. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you have that problem. That's for but, sure. Always, yeah, always. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, I have Canopy and I have HBO Max and I have Netflix and I have Prime and I have Showtime and I have Paramount. <laughs> I'm like, I can't decide what to watch. Um, so I, when I have a guest on to talk about a subject that they're passionate about, they then say, all right, well, I want to talk about this person. And if I don't know this person, I then have to go do research. And mm-hmm. that helps direct uh, my focus sometimes. And, you know, I would never have gone to see supernatural had we mm. not decided to do this or high voltage or 20th century or nothing sacred. I wouldn't have nothing sacred, by the way, was buried on Paramount plus, you know, they oh. don't promote that, but it's there. You can find it. <laughs> it's, it's down the, down in the uh, dark alleys of Paramount plus there it is. There it is for free. So I really appreciate you coming on the show and I'm really glad we got to talk about Carol Lumber because I know way more about her now than ever did before from the movies and your book. 
Um, so thank you so much for doing this. And so why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Well, thank you for having me. First of all, I really enjoyed chatting with you. You can find my book um, on Amazon um, and, or directly from Bloomsbury. You can follow me on Twitter at the screwball girl. There's no I in girl. So that's GRL. And yeah, that's, that's me. All right. Excellent. Check out the book, everybody. If you're interested in old time Hollywood, uh, this is a really fascinating read. And like I said, you discovered some things I never heard of. And I am definitely heading off to YouTube to find that circle uh, episode because oh, yeah. that just sounds I, I, utterly fascinating. It just sounds amazing. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Of course, you can find back episodes of the show on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to Fade Out on any podcatcher of your choice. Uh, we're always talking movies over on Twitter at Fade Out Pod. And then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, let's go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name checked on a show of your choice. So if you love Fade Out, head over to patreon.com slash fwpodcast and let us know. So that's going to do it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another Fade Out before you know it. But until then, we've reached the end of this particular script. So it's time to Fade Out.